0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration, just and energy. to en- talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those two With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh <laughs> view coming on. on ABC Radio. The National Framework for Protecting Australia's Children is a critical policy to improve outcomes for our kids. One of a number of policies intended to improve those outcomes. Uh, including for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and a key vehicle for achieving the target that we've set for ourselves in the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. It has, I think, been a challenging process. Our different perspectives create challenges when it comes to negotiating such frameworks,
1: designing a national plan for protecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berrant. Released late last year, Safe and Supported National Framework for Protecting Australia's Children 2021-2031 is the country's second 10-year national framework for protecting Australia's children. Its release marks a fundamental shift in national policy related to child protection. For the first time, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities will have their own action plan developed in partnership with community representatives. The new framework coincided with the release of the Family Matters Report, an annual snapshot of Indigenous child protection. Launched at the 9th National Snake Conference in December, the event brought together Adjunct Professor Auntie Muir Muriel Bamblett, Associate Professor Paul Gray from the Jumbana Institute at the University of Technology Sydney, Commissioner Natalie Lewis of the Queensland Family and Child Commission and Liz Heffron-Webb, Deputy Secretary of the Families and Community Stream in the Department of Social Services. Let's listen in now and we begin with Auntie Muriel Bamblett as she reflects on the significance of the new national framework.
2: Hi, everybody, back again, and what a time. Yesterday morning, um, we launched the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Early Childhood Strategy. Last week, the Early Childhood Care and Development Sector Strengthening Plan, that was put to the Joint Council for endorsement. In August, we saw the release of jurisdictions closing the gap implementation plans, and last year, we put in place the new national agreement for closing the gap. Now we are about to see the next 10-year National Child Protection Framework to be released by Community Services Minister. These are big policy tools that offer us an incredible opportunity to realise the transformational change that our communities have been calling for for years. And we are pleased to note that the framework recognises our call, your call. At the same time, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, our children, make up 41 per cent of Australia's children in out of home care. We have no choice but to transform the system, its services, and create an opportunity for voice. We cannot keep using the same systems and approaches that got us here to then trust that system to get us out of this position. And we must be bold and we must take up Aunty Pat's call to use the agreement to deliver on government commitments. Target 12 of the Closing the Gap Agreement is to reduce the over-representation of our children in out-of-home care by 45% if by 2031. This is an extremely ambitious target, requiring a 5% reduction every year, no mean feat, given that our Aboriginal population is growing every year. However, when we consider the alternative, it is critical that we are all pitching in, and working to achieve this target. snake cannot do it alone. We have to make sure our children are safe in their families, in their homes, their schools, their social environments, and when interacting with government systems. We also have to make sure that they are being kept with their families and communities wherever possible and are connected to their community and country. It is really, when we speak about safety of children, we need to also consider this in the terms of their psychological safety and that they have a safe place to build and maintain their sense of cultural identity, pride and belonging. What I would personally like to see for this framework and its action plans is that when children and families do come into contact with child protection systems, that they are, are assured of a culturally safe and supportive service that their interactions and their Aboriginal voice is informing their decisions, that these systems will fight to lift children and families up into a position where they can realise their full potential and feel confident in themselves. And I'm pleased to note that in this framework, governments acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community control services are better for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, that we achieve better results we employ more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and we are often prepared over a n- mainstream. We are happy to see that the framework commits to progressive systems transformation that has Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander self-determination at its centre. This includes taking step active steps towards families, communities and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled organisations in partnering in child protection system design and administration. We also note that it commits to reform each jurisdiction with a view to fully embedding the five elements of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle and in supporting delegation of authority to child protection to families, communities and having that go to Aboriginal community controlled organisations. We are pleased to see that one of the four priority groups is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people who are experiencing disadvantage or who are vulnerable, while we note that some of our children and families also apply to the other three groups. This includes children and families with multiple and complex needs, children and young people or parents, carers with a disability experience disadvantage or who are vulnerable, children and young people who have experienced abuse and neglect, including children in out-of-home care, our young people leaving out-of-home care and transitioning to adulthood. We are happy that, along with the focus on addressing the overrepresentation of our children in child protection systems, that this framework unlines the importance of early intervention, targeted supports, of improving information sharing, data development and analysis, and strengthening the child and family sector and workforce capability. All of these align perfectly with the Clouds of Gap Partnership Agreement. We have reached this place after extensive consultations across Australia with our communities. And this is exactly where our community-controlled organisation and workforce, from our point of view, are valuable, as they are already providing, and we've heard throughout this conference, wraparound supports to families. We are responding to the ongoing impacts of stolen generations, working with families to prevent protection and intervention. We are championing self-determination in this sector. We are striving to ensure our children's connections to their families, communities and culture are embedded in our practice, in our ways of working. We have not been static. And look just look at the evidence from this conference. We are already taking it up and we are about real change. And while we see the great opportunity and all the positive alignments, we also have to consider which way all of this tipping will point to Are we going to let all this momentum tip back into business as usual? Are we going to let our children and families continue to fall between the gaps of these several major policy pieces? Will we continue to, you know, be lost in cross-border misalignments and have the borders tell us how we work with our children across our communities? Will we have definitions that don't translate across our jurisdictions? Or let our children be taken away from families and lost and be hurting within a historically racist and institutionally biased system? Or are we going to step up to the plate? Are we going to genuinely take on and explore co-design and co-efforts, increase our areas of collaboration, be ambitious and innovative and try out new ways of doing and be genuinely? This will challenge us and we need to be challenged. If I go back to what I've, you know, heard and seen at this conference, I know that the right people are in the room. I know that our people can do it. I've seen innovation through this conference. I believe we all will. And I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Adjunct Professor Aunty Muriel
1: Bamblett. It's now my privilege to introduce uh, Liz Heffron-Webb, who is the Deputy Secretary of the Families and Communities Stream in the Department of Social Services and oversees policies and programs that support vulnerable communities, families and children, and promote
3: family safety. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Larissa. Thanks so much for having me, and good afternoon, everyone. So I I think um, Muriel's given us a a really good introduction to the kind of ambition that we have collectively for the next national framework for protecting Australia's children. As you said, Larissa, it will be launched imminently, but it has been worked on over a a period of more than 12 months, including a very extensive co-design period aimed at making sure that we learn from what we haven't achieved under the previous framework what we can do better, you know, what we need to do to make this one really uh, make the difference. And importantly, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island leadership group have endorsed the new framework. That's a new thing that wasn't a, a kind of a proper endorsement or governance process for the previous framework, so we're really pleased about that. The vision for the framework is that children and young people in Australia reach their full potential by growing up safe and supported, free from harm and neglect. And the goal is to make significant and sustained progress in reducing the rates of child abuse and neglect and its intergenerational impacts. We will be delivering the framework through two five-year action plans and, again, for the first time, the framework will include a standalone Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander action plan alongside a general action plan. We've also aimed to ensure that the framework embeds the full priority reforms of Closing the Gap, so it also embeds a different way of working. We're going to have a shared decision-making process. We're going to support self-determination and we're going to ensure that a wide range of groups have their voices heard. That includes a commitment to establish formal partnerships and shared decision-making with Indigenous representatives to oversee, evaluate and implement the national framework. The National Framework commits to building the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community-controlled sector and equipping and enabling Aboriginal community-controlled organisations to deliver more services to children and families. In relation to Priority Reform 3 around government organisations, the National Framework aims to address institutional racism and embed and support meaningful cultural safety. It also commits to enabling the full implementation of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle across all jurisdictions. And finally, in support of priority reform for it will support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to better use local data to support efforts to close the gap. So I'll stop there. I really appreciate the opportunity to be at this conference and on this panel. It's now my very
1: great privilege to introduce Dr. Paul Gray, who's also Associate Professor at the Jambana Institute, uh, where he oversees the child protection work. Uh, Paul is a proud Wiradjuri man from New South Wales with immense experience in the child and family sector, upholding the rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and families. Dr. Paul Gray.
0: Thank you, Larissa. The National Framework for Protecting Australia's Children is a critical policy to improve outcomes for our kids. As Arnie Muriel noted, it's one of a number of policies intended to improve those outcomes, uh, including for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and a key vehicle for achieving the target that we've set for ourselves in the National Agreement on Closing the Gap. It has, I think, been a challenging process. Our different perspectives create challenges when it comes to negotiating such frameworks, It's almost like our communities and government turn up to play a game of footy together, and it's only when we arrive that we realise that one group has rocked up for some rugby league and the other ready to play AFL. While the broad mechanics of those might be somewhat similar, all of the key elements are completely different. We don't even have a shared starting point on what shape the field should be. So while it seems, I think, pretty easy to say, hey, let's come together about how we can support children and young people to grow up safe and supported, how we understand and approach that question is very different. And I think there's a shared view though, that all Australian children deserve better than the systems that we have now, and that it's on all of us to do better. But is our goal to enhance those systems and practices, finding better ways to respond to families experiencing crisis, or is a bigger change required? To the very systems and practices themselves need to be reimagined to fundamentally transform how they work. The change needed to these systems for our kids must acknowledge our distinct identity and political status. And because of this, the nature of that change to address the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children a key priority of this framework is fundamentally different than for other children. We must keep that distinction in mind as we go about operationalising the national framework. If we want this to work, if we want to meet the target, if we want to have a different story when we review the national framework than when we reviewed the last one, then we need to embrace those foundations of self-determination, of our communities collectively determining the systems and the supports needed for our children to be safe and to thrive. Now, this is not a new idea. Our communities have called for just this type of change for a very long time. Bringing them home, it is frustrating, I think, to point out, put self-determination front and centre of the Child Protection Reform Agenda more than two decades ago. But here we are in 2021, and only now are some jurisdictions tentatively exploring models that place some decisions in community hands. And like bringing them home, the Family Matters building blocks we touched on in the last session represent the foundations for the needed transformation. And I think it's interesting to note that there is broadly consensus on the enablers of a just child welfare system for Indigenous peoples. Whether we're talking about the Family Matters building blocks or the touchstones of hope in North America, the themes are very similar. They're the things that Arnie Muriel spoke about, It's about holistic, universal and targeted supports. It's about addressing the drivers of risk, about families and communities being involved in and having controls over decisions that affect their children and that this should be reflected and enabled in legislation and policy with transparency and accountability of these systems. And as usual, self-determination, the culture of our communities are at the very centre, the very foundations of that reimagined system. But sadly, I think we also see some of the similar challenges across our communities in realising that vision, that states have trouble stepping back. And there is evidence of that and stands as a reminder of the work that is still needed. Governments, I think, need to demonstrate that they can hand over that authority and that they can come to this in a different way rather than perpetuating a relationship of control. And that's something that we as communities must stay vigilant to as we work out our own ways to step up and exercise those authorities responsibly. Business as usual will only get us to outcomes as usual. And I think it's imperative that through the national agreement and the national framework that we commit to bold actions that fundamentally transform child protection systems by and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, families and communities. Now, this will mean understanding all of the elements of the national framework through the eyes of our communities and the principles for action. It will mean shaping a distinct Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander led theory of change that reflects our understanding that it is child protection themselves that need to change, particularly with respect to where authority and decision making lies. That the days of non Indigenous people and non Indigenous systems telling us what is best for our children must be over if those targets and priorities are to be more than token gestures. It will mean shaping measures that capture this system's change, as much as the changes achieved for families, the strong recognition of our rights as Indigenous peoples, that our voices and cultures are valued, and that we determine our children's futures, and through them, our own. And it will depend on courageous, resourced action plans to drive this transformation. Thank you.
1: It's now my privilege to introduce Commissioner Natalie Lewis, who was appointed Commissioner for the Queensland Family and Child Commission in May 2020. Natalie is a Gamilaroi woman and brings with her a wealth of experience and knowledge from her distinguished 20-year plus career in youth justice, child and family services and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs. As you would all know, she's shown exceptional leadership in the space that we're discussing today. It's lovely to have you here, Natalie Lewis.
4: Thank you, Larissa. It's great to see all of you. I want to talk a little bit about um, in terms of the process for the national framework. I think one of the points of difference in this process was there was a real, I guess, a demonstrated effort to bring Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to the table and to recalibrate that power dynamic and have a say in how the national framework eventuated. I think that one of the things that we need to pay close attention to this time around is to have some very, very clear mechanisms of accountability. I think that was largely absent from the last national framework. And I think that um, what we found in in the discussions in developing the framework is that everybody is up for it in terms of being accountable. That includes our peak bodies, our service providers, as well as the government departments that had come to the table. I think what we need to do is push that a little bit and we need to be prepared to let those terms of accountability be set by the children and families whose lives are most profoundly impacted um, by this particular piece of work. I think that Snake and this collective that we have of incredible community-controlled organisations are very well placed to communicate what those aspirations and what those expectations of our communities are. And I think it's going to be a really important reassurance for our communities to see that the measures that we are going to focus on are the ones that matter to them that are not purely about what every jurisdiction feels comfortable reporting or what their data system is capable of generating in a report. We have to move beyond that because the data issue has been an excuse for inaction for far too long. And I don't want to see the promise of this particular framework undermined by an inability to or an unwillingness to truly be accountable to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. One of the big challenges that we will have is is safeguarding the intent of these reforms off the pages of the strategy and into the lives of children and families. I think from the last framework, you know I, I felt there was great progress in this sort of national acknowledgement and recognition of the five elements of the Child Placement Principle, but what we saw over time was not the urgency and not the capacity to really safeguard that intent to make sure that in every single jurisdiction, each element of the Child Placement Principle was being implemented to the standard of active efforts. I think we've clarified the language, we've lifted the bar and the expectation um, in this iteration, and I think organisations such as the Queensland Family and Child Commission are incredibly well placed as a statutory body to provide independent oversight into their application of the child placement principle and the impact that that is having, good or otherwise, in eliminating the overrepresentation of our kids in out-of-home care. One other, I guess, lesson from the last uh, iteration that I think we still need to push a bit more in the phase of action planning is to make sure that we are not solely focused on statutory child protection systems. I think sometimes we still delude ourselves to think that the solutions to these issues can be found in the place where many of the problems are actually only exacerbated. So we need to look away from the system as being the source of the solution and look to our communities. We also need to bring other government departments and social policy areas to the table and told them to account for the broader obligations that they have around upholding the rights of children and young people. I think that uh, the last one tended to let a lot of government departments off the hook at both the Commonwealth and the jurisdictional level. And I think that we absolutely, if we are committed to this one making a difference and being more than we imagined for the first one, we need to bring the right departments to the table. We need to have them exercise their sphere of influence and we need to be prepared to hold everyone to account for delivering on the rights of First Nations children in this country. Thanks, Larissa. Fantastic. Thanks, Natalie. So I'm going to just
1: open up now some questions to the panel. And I guess I'm mindful this is the last session in what's been a, a really intensive, rewarding, thoughtful, reflective conference. And so I thought I'd ask you all to start off with just from your perspective, having thought through a lot of things and heard a lot of things over the last couple of days and from your very unique and important perspectives from where you're working, what you see as one of the biggest challenges to overcome to improve outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and where is the best place for us to start to address this challenge? So I'll start with you, Arnie Muriel.
2: Larissa, I think the greatest challenge is if we don't have our local Aboriginal communities involved, if they don't know the local data, if they don't know how big the issue or what the types of issues If family violence is a key contributor in a local community and you don't know, you don't know how many women, you don't know how many children are being removed for what reason, I think that the danger is is that we don't actually co-design this process or think about how do we include communities. I mean, at this conference we've heard about new commissioning approaches in New South Wales. We're hearing about innovation in different ways. Should we be doing commissioning differently? I think that we do need to work out how do we hear the voice of young people and children in this process. But jurisdictions need to be prepared to let go of, you know, control. They, you know, hold the purse strings. Often mainstream have got goodwill and want to do it, but governments say, well, it's our money. So I think it is about, you know, often we we go to the worst-case scenario, but it's about local communities. Do they want parenting programs? Do they want resources to do things their way to hold cultural business? The danger is is that we come up with a Western construct of a child protection system that doesn't work. And I think that it's really important that whatever we come up with is truly self-determining and engaging our people and that they can see themselves in it. Thanks, Annie Muriel. And what are your thoughts
1: on that, Liz?
3: So I guess for me, the biggest challenge, and i probably see it from the lens of uh, public servants, so apologise. That's going to frame my answer, but for me, it's that sustained and integrated approach over the long term that I think, you know, there've been many good reports, there've been many good initiatives around the country, there's been good efforts by individual governments to do individual things. We haven't really had transformation because there hasn't been a sustained and integrated approach that's been maintained over enough of a period for those things to get enough momentum and to stick in a way. And so, you know, that's not just about statutory systems and changes in statutory systems. As Natalie said, it's also about early intervention and those kinds of services that communities want and which are demonstrably effective in helping families avoid any contact with the child protection system. There's a lot of chopping and changing, and I'm taking a responsibility that governments haven't been good at coming up with models or supporting models and then sticking with them and giving them time to develop and mature. So my hope is that this framework, we will see more consistency. I think That will require stronger systems of accountability to keep us kind of true to what's been committed to. But to me, the biggest challenge is really keeping faith and sticking with what we've got, which is a good base foundation.
1: Great. Thanks, Liz. Um, And I'll cross over to you now, Dr. Paul Gray.
0: Thanks, Larissa. I think I've already said enough about the relationship between government and our communities. So I want to take a slightly different lens and developmentally we know what matters for children uh, and for families and what we have to do to improve outcomes. It's about supporting responsive relationships, reducing sources of stress, and strengthening core life skills. And I think what we know is that these things are interrelated. And the good side of that means that if we improve one, then we make it more likely that we will achieve improvements in the others. And I think the flip side of that, though, is that if we undermine one or, or don't properly support one, then there's a risk that we also undermine the others. So, for example, families that are struggling with poverty and housing instability are perhaps more likely to find it difficult to provide the responsive relationships that their kids need. And so I think for me, the big challenge that I would like to see us tackle is that as a society, How do we invest better in families? How do we better support families to address those sources of stress and strain, particularly for those families doing it tough? Because we know that the best way to make a difference for kids is to make a difference for those families. And as Commissioner Lewis said, it goes beyond the child protection system. It's about addressing those structural drivers of risk and how we do about that, how we go about that, bringing all of the levers that we have at our control from local government to state government to the federal government to make a difference for families.
4: Thank you. And Commissioner Lewis, what are your thoughts? I think one of the toughest challenges is going to be putting enough effort and focus on the structural reforms that are necessary. I think that sometimes there's a bit of an incentive, or it's it seems a bit an easier path to sort of look at a program response. And so it's almost like design enough programs and deliver those. And it gives the appearance of busyness and of of implementing something. But unfortunately, those things are rarely targeted to the right needs, delivered by the right people or measured in the right way. So it's really hard for us in terms of attribution to see that it's made absolutely any difference. When we talk about the structural reform, the type that's imagined, you know, through Closing the Gap or even within the the context of this national framework, it is going to be a challenge. It feels good to say, right? It feels good to acknowledge that there's a need to change um, these structures, but putting the work in to do it is going to be uncomfortable for many it's going to be a challenge but it is absolutely necessary i think there are these are some really Clear opportunities, um, you know, within the action planning to make really high impact decisions around priority reforms. And one example would be in terms of eliminating structural or systemic racism from within the tertiary child protection system. One thing we could do is be honest across the country and say that there are tools being used that have an inherent cultural bias that have adverse outcomes disproportionately for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And so I think where we've got those clear indications of parts of the system that need to be radically transformed as a matter of urgency, we can lean on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researchers, thought leaders, practitioners and professionals to redesign a risk assessment tool that is specifically developed in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and their families that takes into account the context in which we live and and raise children. I think that there's a real opportunity to call those things out and provide a solution that is absolutely led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to make a real difference. Great, thanks.
1: Uh, Liz, I wanted to ask you, child protection is obviously predominantly a state and territory responsibility. Can you comment from your perspective why Commonwealth government involvement and national strategies are so important?
3: So, yes, you're right. The kind of dry words of the Constitution don't include reference to children. They include reference to marriage, but not children, as we all know. So it is an area where the Commonwealth has no explicit powers, but we are signatories to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. So we have commitments under that. To the well-being of all Australian children and ensuring that their rights are upheld and their needs are met. For us, that's a, a real core of our work with states and territories. I want to acknowledge that it's been the advocacy also of many organisations, including Snake, and also in the mainstream sector Families Australia, who've pushed for the Commonwealth to have a on a convening role. In this work, because of the significance of the issues, the importance of Australian families having access to support wherever they live, the cross border issues. And I think someone mentioned earlier that, you know, for a lot of families, they don't necessarily think about state borders, their family relationships embrace across those. So there's sort of all good reasons for us to be involved. Another one is, of course, the kind of linkage of child protection issues with those other issues that people have mentioned around family safety, around issues of disability, issues of health and mental health. So there's a, to me, a really clear argument that still makes it sometimes a difficult position for us to be working with eight states and territories who at different times do or don't welcome our involvement and have kind of questioned our our role. But I must say at the moment, there's a, a lot of Confluence of views and support and commitment around doing this framework differently. I do want to acknowledge the transformational nature of the Closing the Gap Agreement across all jurisdictions. We're all coming to this from a different place than perhaps 10 or 12 years ago that people would have. So we kind of can see the value in an integrated approach that still accounts for local difference, and each state and territory does have its own statutory system. We can't tell them or control what they do with that statutory system, but they do learn from each other. They are watching each other's practice. And, you know, as I said, there's an overarching commitment we have to the wellbeing of all Australian children under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child.
1: Thanks, Liz. Uh, Dr Paul Gray, the First National Framework failed to shift policy and practice over an extended period, making it clear that there is an accountability gap. How can we ensure that future strategies hold all stakeholders to account for implementing necessary reforms? And I feel like this is a very good question for you because I think it's a very key part of your work to try and make decision makers more accountable.
0: Thanks, Larissa. And I wonder if it's both an accountability gap, but also with respect to the last national framework, a bit of an ambition gap. And I think what I mean by that is part of why we didn't see the results that we want to see for our kids through the national, the last national framework was that it didn't really do enough to tackle the structural and systemic factors that really need to change if we're going to address overrepresentation. I just don't know that one can do just practice in a system that is fundamentally oppressive when it comes to our children and our communities. And so yet we do definitely have to have better accountability. And I agree with Commissioner Lewis that I think through these processes, we have seen that everyone is up for that and everyone is committed to exploring how we can make sure that there is greater transparency and and greater accountability. But I also think that we have to make sure that we are bold enough to reach past the low-hanging fruit that won't achieve the changes that we really need to see, and clearly and unapologetically Commit to transforming not just the child protection system, but the broader network of supports for children and families so that we can actually address the fundamental issues that underpin the overrepresentation. With respect to accountability, again, I would agree with Commissioner Lewis earlier that there's a, a whole range of elements to that. And certainly we should be including and and centering the experiences of our children and our families who are most affected by these systems in how we do that. But I think it's also in how we then set up our theory of change, how we think about what needs to change and how we build the measures and report on those measures to make sure that things are happening. Now, one of the things we have to keep in mind is There's a lot of downstream time that happens between making a change and seeing the benefits for families sometimes. So, we've got to make sure that we have also those intermediate markers to make sure that we are on the right path and that we're responsive to the things that we're learning and can do better. I think one of the key elements of that is obviously we've got a National Children's Commissioner, but I think that's a very large job. And there are a lot of challenges facing our nation's children. And as we heard, particularly coercive systems like the child protection system, like the justice system, disproportionately affect our kids. So I think that role would be complemented by a National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Children's Commissioner who can keep a close eye on progress and hold all of us, hold governments, hold community, hold everyone to account from a very clear rights-based framework. Great. Thanks.
1: Commissioner Lewis, my question for you was how you see things as being different under the new Closing the Gap Agreement and how will children and families know and see the difference?
4: I think under the... New closing the gap agreement. I think that it probably better reflects the intersectionality between um, a number of those target areas. We've got to focus on the coordination across those things. And so what, I, what I'm talking about the intersectionality is that the vulnerability of children and families and their exposure over representation in the child protection system has a lot to do with housing and poverty and health and a whole range of other things that Have too often been seen as someone else's portfolio or someone else's responsibility. So I think one of the benefits with closing the gap is not just about inclusion of child protection or representation targets, but the potential to maximise that integration across the responses of health and housing and child protection and justice. So I think that's probably one of the real benefits that that I see presented under the you know the new agreement, but you know I I, I do need to say that though when you even even when you look at this first phase when you start to see the development of the implementation plans at a jurisdictional level you see it carved up like you know, a list of responsibilities for one minister or for one one particular department, and then you kind of move on to the next target. So I think that there needs to be a bit of a renewed focus around the coordination and capitalising on the intersectionality of those particular reforms. And, you know, look, the other thing is just not to, I mean, I, I always worry when we place too much confidence in a particular strategy, that doesn't need to be our authorising environment for reform. Like we've got plenty of organisations across the state that are absolutely changing the way they deliver services, improving outcomes for kids and families, and they didn't look to a strategy for that mandate. So I think what we've got to also remember is that we encourage that you know innovation, that ingenuity, and that just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do that occurs you know, so organically in a lot of our communities, I think that needs to be acknowledged as a significant part of us getting to the point where our kids aren't overrepresented in the system.
1: Fantastic, thank you, Annie Muriel Bamblett. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about how we can listen and hear the voices of children as we're shaping and implementing national policies like the new national framework. I think one of the strengths of your work is it's been so inclusive. Children are the focus of these policies. From your perspective, how do we incorporate their experiences and their
2: voices as we go forward? I think Snakes has been amazing at being able to capture the voice of our sector through our sector partners, through um, our members and so including in the consultations, if you look around at the work that we've done around the national early year strategy, that was very much premised on talking to our communities. Through the family matters, we've been able to engage local Aboriginal communities with the finger on the pulse of what's happening for their children. And so we wouldn't be able to get the rich information if we didn't have a good membership. But I think that a lot of work has also been done by Anne Hollands as well. And we talk about June Oscar's report and they heard very much from young people and children. And we can see, you can see the report from Anne Hollands highlights the importance of putting a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander commissioner into place. What they found was 70 organisations and children's commissioners and guardians from across Australia have endorsed snake and the Family Matters position paper calling for a national commissioner. You can see the results that we're getting when you look at all the states and territories that have a commissioner. The only issue I see is that many of them don't have own motion powers. Many of them are junior to another commissioner, which I would ask that they be standalone commissioners with their own power. I think that that's a role that's really critical. They need to be able to call and look at and hold systems accountable. I think having a national commissioner would sit alongside the Australian Commission, but it's got to have the same powers and own motion powers to be able to do us justice. I think we've got so many plans, we've got so many conventions, we've got so many things relating to children. But one thing we haven't got, we don't understand what self-determination looks like for a child. We've looked at it for children with a disability in other countries, but what does self-determination look like for children? I think that having a a national Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander commission would give us the capacity to advocate at the national level for the needs, rights, cultural rights as well and views of our children and for our young people as well and it would provide rigorous oversight and accountability of government, of of the child protection systems that are supposed to protect our children but don't often and guarantee child protection that our children's rights as well as have a, a voice dedicated for advancing those rights. A lot of the Commission's works at the moment are addressing complaints, and there are so many complaints from carers about how they're treated. But I think how do we actually inject into it empowerment? And I think a Commissioner would be empowered to support strategies and to leave more effective collaboration and coordination between governments and, I think, having a national commission because we've got all of these commissioners and they're doing great things, but they're inconsistent. Inconsistent policies, states and territories' commitments are different, but I was so excited to hear about Northern Territory and the great work they're doing. But It's unheard of. It's not out there, how the investment in Aboriginal community control. These are things that a national commissioner can put in the spotlight, and I think what we often hear is we denigrate our states and territories and our echoes. A national commissioner could actually profile us as what we're doing right and what we're doing good, not just promote it as somewhere where you go to put in complaints and where you identify imperfections in the system. Thanks, Larissa.
1: Well, we're almost out of time, but I think one of the things I admire about the work of the people on the panel is that even though this is a really difficult area to work in and there's a a lot of very hard issues that we're facing and very personal stories to be told, that everyone here works from a strengths-based approach to those things. So I thought just in the few minutes we've got, if I could quickly ask each of you, it's a very ambitious plan to close the gap in this area and that target of reducing overrepresentation representation out out-of-home care by 45% by 2031 is ambitious but it's essential. And I guess just very quickly I was going to ask each of you then what gives you hope that we can achieve that? And I guess it's a way of asking you to reflect on what you see as the great strengths of the sector and the people who work in it. And I'll start with you, Commissioner Lewis.
4: So look, I think that I am incredibly fortunate in the role that I'm in because I don't have to look far for hope because I get all these amazing opportunities to engage with young people directly and to hear from them about what matters in their lives, like what they're thinking about, like uh, the things that um, matter in their particular communities. And, And I think that For me, like seeing that outlook and that absolute fixation with better, like that we can all be better. I mean, I get to see that routinely, but mainly through our engagement with our kids. So if we put them in the centre and we start actually valuing them and and, and prioritising their voice and their participation, I think that that hope maybe starts to overwhelm us a little bit and we might actually find the fuel we need to get us to the point where our kids aren't overrepresented in out-of-home care.
1: Lovely. Thank you. Liz, what gives you hope?
3: I mean, I think for me, I've been a public servant a long time and I've been in different roles and not always in the centre of this work, but several times right in the centre of this work. And what gives me hope is, to be honest, people like Muriel, who 20 years ago was right here saying these things and the kind of determination, stamina and courage to keep raising the issues to to kind of keep going when often there hasn't been much progress, as we've said, knowing that people, are, you know, have dedicated their lives and their work to achieving these goals and their energy and just the kind of grace with which they continue to engage with us governments who don't always deliver what's wanted or needed, that's the bit that gives me hope.
0: Lovely. Uh, Dr Paul Gray? Look, I think it's really easy to lose that hope, I think, sometimes. So it is important that we focus on the things that give us hope. And I think for me, it's gatherings like the Snake conference, where we are able to hear from the work that our communities are doing. You get to hear from across the country the various kind of innovative approaches that communities are taking for themselves. And they might be, you know, relatively small programs that are focused on a specific issue or broad systems changes that they're trying to advocate with government. But just taking those steps, I'm really inspired all the time by the thought leadership that comes from our communities, often driven by our grandmothers and our aunties, as I said in the last session. But also we've got people like Carl and Jacinta coming through, who are just such staunch advocates for our communities. And, you know, those are only two. We know of many of those across our country who are doing that sort of work in their communities, and I think those are the things that give me hope.
1: Great. Right. And Aunty
2: Muriel, since you give us so much hope, <laughs> what gives you hope? Look, I mean, I wish that when I started 20 years ago that we had this opportunity. I sit around the table with the Coalition of peeps, and I we are seeing progress like you've never seen we've never seen that states or territories with this sort of level of commitment, and even the Northern Territory in their presentation they're saying that government's up the ante so look at this we've got family matters we've got a national aboriginal early childhood strategy, and now we've got safe and supported so this is snake's work, and this is direction setting this is government, and now it's snake you know having. An Aboriginal CEO and workers that are so committed and so passionate we 're getting we 've got now an Aboriginal workforce. Look at how many of us there are out there we 've got thousands of Aboriginal people working in early years, early years family violence justice we 've got a big footprint. I just think if I had my wish i 'd take whatever 's here today and go back twenty years I, I wish i wasn 't at the end of my career. I really do wish this was the start of my career but, um, yeah it 's exciting
1: that's adjunct professor Auntie Muriel Bamblett you also heard from associate professor Paul Gray from the Jambana Institute at the University of Technology Sydney commissioner Natalie Lewis from the Queensland Family and Child Commission and Liz Heffron Webb deputy secretary of the Families and Community Stream in the Department of Social Services they were taking part in the 2021 Snake National Conference held last December the event coincided with the release of the Family Matters Report 20 an annual snapshot of Indigenous child protection. If listeners wish to find a copy of the report, it's available on the Family Matters website, familymatters.org.au. To take us out tonight, we'll leave you with some music from Moju featuring Sticks. This song is taken from their collaboration album, which they released last year, and is called Like Crazy.
2: It's time to make it right. in a stairwell echo in a farewell tell me what do you need if it's blood I will bleed if you want me to leave
1: that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we highlight efforts to revitalise Aboriginal cultural practices. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berend and this is Speaking Out.